nice and cool and <laughs> praise God. Come January, we're going to be missing this. I know I will be. <laughs> I surely will. Amen. God is so good to us. He is so good to his people. Amen. Anybody read the news recently? Have you looked at anything recently? If you haven't, that's probably good. Uh, if you have, uh, this world is falling apart at the seams. It really is. And, uh, I mean, everything, everything we look at, everything that we hear, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back very quickly. And we don't have a lot of time. We don't. Uh, and more importantly, they don't. Those that we're ministering to, those that we're called to reach, they don't have a lot of time. And so, uh, Understanding that in these times, it is so important for us to, to focus on those things that are truly important, those things that are eternal, not the temporal, not the not things of this world, but the eternal, eternal salvation. Amen. We have Brother Reddy with us this evening, and I'm very excited to hear from him. Uh, he is... He's done quite a bit, actually, but most recently, he's called to minister to the Native American population. And what the UPCI has has going on in multicultural ministries is absolutely amazing. It's amazing, and you know, I don't I don't know what the Lord is going to lay in your heart, but I hope I hope he he tells us some of that. What's going on in multicultural ministries because it is. It's fascinating, and it, it's, it's so exciting. All of these churches that are being planted uh, all across the United States, different cultures, different culture groups, and uh, just fascinating. I'm so excited about what God is doing and what God wants to do right here in La Crosse. Amen. So uh, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. God has a plan for this service. He has a reason that we're here tonight. Uh, it's not because someone put it on a calendar. Uh, there's a bigger reason than that. And that reason is why we're here tonight. Amen. Let's call out to him in prayer. Let's ask God to bless this service according to his will. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I am so thankful for the manifest presence of God in this place this evening. Thank you, Jesus for your mercy and for your grace, your long-suffering patience to usward. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are an amazing God. You're doing amazing things all across this world. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. It is our desire, it is our honest passion, Lord Jesus, to serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to give ourselves wholly and completely to you. Help us to do so tonight. Help us to receive all that you have for us, I pray, Lord, above all things else, that your great and mighty name would be glorified here this evening. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We give glory and honor unto the Most High tonight. Praise God. Praise God. We're so thankful for all that you have in store for us. Praise God. Hallelujah, Jesus. 
Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of all praise. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have in store. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done, all that you are doing. You are an awesome God, and we expect awesome things tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for the ministration of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Jesus, that all of your heart is going to be manifest in this place tonight. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. He's an awesome God. And when we put our hope and our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him, we are not let down. We are not disappointed. Praise God. When we put it in anything else, we are eternally frustrated. Amen. Brother Reddy, if you would come and minister to us according to what God has given you. Amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. You may be seated. So good to be in the house of the Lord tonight and thankful for the opportunity to be in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Thankful for all the Lord is doing in this wonderful district. The, the revival reports, the church is being planted. We hear about that in other parts of the country and we're thankful for that uh, because really it takes a lot of work to do what God has asked us to do. People always want to know about ministry and how you get involved and uh, maybe they glory in, in what we do, but really it's just work. Uh, amen. And I'm thankful to be a part of the work of the Lord. My wife and I have been asked to serve as missionaries uh, to the Native American and Alaskan Native and the First Nation people. First Nation is the terminology they use in Canada for uh, for their native people that are there. What that means is there are 7 million Native Americans in the United States, 574 recognized tribes on 330-something reservations. Every one of those reservations has its own sovereign government. Uh, they have their own laws. Many of them have a language, although most of them speak some, some English, uh, mainly because they were forced to learn English, but that's a, another part of our history we won't spend too much time on tonight. But it's challenging because everywhere we go, it's a little different, and the people groups are, are, are different everywhere we go. And uh, to give you a little bit of background on us, just real briefly, um, because I get the, the question I get asked the most is, how did I get involved in Native ministry? As you can probably tell, uh, I'm not Native. And so uh, it's a good question because, you know, we, we got involved in it at kind of a, a ministry that's not our own people, but we have fallen in love with the people. Twenty years ago, we started a church in the Kansas City, Missouri area, and, uh, and we're already involved with what multicultural ministries uh, has been around about 27, 28 years in the United Pentecostal Church as a, as a ministry. Obviously, we've always reached out to all cultures. We just didn't have a name for it, and we didn't have a focus on it necessarily. And so we've been involved with multicultural ministry since that time. And uh, so we started looking for other opportunities among other culture groups. Uh, most churches will tell you that all cultures are welcome in their church. And, uh, you know, everyone's welcome to come. But the reality is everybody's not coming. Uh, 
And so sometimes we have to be intentional to look for opportunities, uh, especially when you're dealing with another culture. Well, in our city, we found there were a lot of Samoan people from the island of Samoa and American Samoa. We started uh, working with a group there, started a daughter work in the Samoan community, uh, really got involved in multicultural ministries that way. And then after that, we served on staff at a little larger church, working with their multicultural ministries. We had about 17 nationalities in our church, and I had the opportunity to do Bible studies and uh, home cell groups with uh, Haitians, Jamaicans, Kenyans, people from Central and South America, just all different groups. I found one thing that when working with people from other cultures, I like everybody's food. I haven't found one cultural food that I don't like. And, uh, and, that, and we laugh about that, but really, in most other cultures, food is a very big part of the church experience. It used to be that way in our culture, but we got so busy in the West that, that uh, we've cut that out because there's so much preparation and so much cleanup involved. Uh, years ago in the church, it was all day singing and dinner on the grounds, and now it's all day singing and dinner on your own. <laughs> but in every other culture, food is almost every service. They have a meal, and that's part of the fellowship, and uh, winning them to yourself takes place. And that's that's a very real uh, part of what we try to do. And so uh, after that, we were asked about seven years ago to come to uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, to pastor a church there, a church of about 25 or 30 people. We went and obviously recognized right away that the multicultural opportunity there was among Native American people. And so I, I like to say it like this. Twenty years ago, I got in multicultural ministry, but seven years ago, multicultural ministry got into me. And we fell in love with the people, fell in love with their uh, their culture and all the things about them, and uh, really have uh, submerged ourselves in that culture. We were blessed in that church when we went there. About ten of our church members were native. When we when we left, sixty five percent of our church was native from nine different tribes, and we had preaching points on the Navajo the Hopi and the Apache reservations where we would go every month and minister to people out on the reservation. And the Lord really worked uh, a lot of great things. Uh, probably the most Native American thing we've done personally is we got involved with foster care and we ended up adopting two Navajo children. So now our children are 30 and 27 and 5 and 4. And I said that to one of my friends and he referenced Abraham. I'm not sure... What he was trying to say about me, but, uh, anyway. So, uh, ladies, all I should have to say is five and four, and you know why my wife's not here tonight, but, uh, they're currently not traveling with me everywhere that I go. But, uh, our children are the best part of our ministry. We're thankful for them, and God has really blessed us with these two, two little ones. You can't stereotype Native American people like any other culture. They're, they're different, uh, from, from one end of the spectrum to the other, uh, educated, non-educated, um, probably more per capita, more, uh, veterans come out of the Native American community than any other ethnic group, uh, American veterans. And, uh, they, they saw that we had the, the Navajo code talkers in World War II that helped us get the upper hand with the Japanese. And so there's a lot of positive things that have come out of the Native American community. Not stereotyping them. Let me give one quick example. There's a tribe in South Dakota that's probably the poorest tribe that I know of. They currently live on about $7,000 per year 
per household. That's not per person. That's per household. On the flip side, your neighbors right here in Minnesota, there's a tribe uh, that has very few adult members in the tribe. They happen to share revenue from their casino with their adult membership. Now, most tribes don't share their revenue. It's a misnomer to think that all natives are getting rich by the casino because most tribes, the tribal government keeps all that money. And they act like all other governments. <laughs> and uh, But this particular tribe, they decided they're going to share revenue with their adult membership. And currently, every adult in that tribe gets $84,000 a month. So I ran down and had a DNA test <laughs> to see if I could prove that I was a part of that tribe. Because <laughs> if I could get $84,000 a month, I wouldn't have to deputize. I could just... Pay my way into the mission field, right? Well, here we are. So apparently I'm not part of that tribe. So, so you can't stereotype. However, there are a lot of things that are very, uh, common on reservations. Many of those things are negative. Things like 70% unemployment, uh, over 70% alcoholism. Anytime you get that much free time and that much alcohol, your domestic violence and your abuse goes way up. Uh, the children feel like there's no outlet, and so they uh, get hooked on drugs at a very early age. And that affects all of our cultures, all of our communities. But on the reservation, it's at a lot higher level. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of different opinions about drug abuse in our world today, but really people don't abuse a substance unless they have a need that's unmet. And so these people have unmet needs, and they're utilizing drugs to try to, to medicate that. And, and the bottom line is the drugs are readily available and treatment centers are not in their culture. So uh, before I put them down for having that issue, I, I want to find out the, the real cause of the issue. We, we tend to treat the symptom and not go to the root of the problem sometimes. But uh, in, in all of that, the, the biggest probably heartache to me is their suicide rate is over five times the national average, and that's because they've taken the posture of no hope. They feel like they don't have any hope, and of course we know that hope comes from Jesus. Amen. The government's not going to fix their problem. Uh, their tribal council's not going to fix their issues. Only Jesus Christ can fix the problems that they have in their community. We call the gospel of Jesus the good news, right? But I like to say it like this, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Amen. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm going around uh, raising awareness, uh, gaining prayer partners, gaining financial partners, so that we can help bring the gospel to the people in time before they become the next statistic. On this table up here tonight, I've got some things you can look at um, and, and just some things we've collected, given to us by different members of different tribes. There's also some bookmarks. Please take one if you would like. Put it in your Bible. Put it in a book maybe that you're reading. When you see it, remember to pray with us. On the back, there are some prayer agendas, things you can help us pray about so that we can get to where we need to be and we can have favor with God and favor with the people when we get there. <clears throat> Amen. Our missionary program, uh, through Multicultural Ministries, that Pastor mentioned earlier, we uh, Multicultural Ministries, as I said, has been around about 27 years. We have 
currently 21 different ethnic ministries or, or specific ministries to people groups. Everything from Chinese evangelism, Vietnamese evangelism, Korean evangelism. Uh, we have an Amish Mennonite ministry. We have deaf evangelism as part of our, uh, because the deaf is a, is a culture all in its own. We have Native American ministries. So all of these different ministries go and make up multicultural ministries. And currently we have five now missionaries to specific cultures. Over 13 years, five missionary families have started 81 daughter works through the Multicultural Missionary Program where we go and we assist churches in, in starting uh, preaching points and daughter works among other culture groups. And so it really is uh, an effective tool. And, uh, and I want to thank you for allowing us to come tonight and share that with you. Please help us by becoming a prayer partner with us that we can see revival. The Bible says in Revelation when we get to heaven, they're going to be there from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Amen. And I just believe that to mean what it says. And there's going to be native people there from every one of 574 tribes. I don't know how we're going to do it. But God does. Amen. And then says, I'm so thankful tonight it's not left up to us because he's going to do the work. Amen. If we make ourselves available to him. Amen. If you want to turn with me in Luke chapter 4. Thank you, Pastor, again for the opportunity to be here tonight. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4 beginning with verse 16. One other thing while, while you're turning there, uh, I talked a little bit of, to Pastor uh, at, before service about one of our websites. It's globaltracks.com, uh, and I'll try to leave that information with, with people here so you can remember that. There are Bible studies in 64 different languages at globaltracks.com. You can print it off hand it to someone that speaks Vietnamese or uh, Chinese or some of these other languages, and they can read about the truth of the Word of God, the oneness of God, the, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, all of these things in their own native language. And this is just one tool that Multicultural Ministries makes available uh, at no charge. You can go there, click on the, the Bible study you want, click on the language you want, and print it off and hand it to somebody, and they can read in their own language the truth of the Word of God. Amen. Because all the nations of the world have come to North America. Amen. And we can have a discussion about whether they should have or how they got here. And, uh, and my opinion on that is uh, I believe that if the Bible speaks to a topic, then my opinion needs to line up with the Word of God. And if the Bible is silent on a topic then I'm free to decide whatever I want to believe about it, right? Well, with the topic of people moving to America from all over the world, I get asked that a lot as well. The Bible says in Acts 17:26 that God determines the boundaries of our habitation. What that means in modern English is God decides where we live. And so I have to believe that people are coming here that God's orchestrating that. And I believe that, that I know they think they're coming here for a better life and for a better opportunity and the American way and all that stuff. And it seems like only Americans hate the American way of life. Everybody else is trying to get as advice as they can. And I know that probably shouldn't have, shouldn't have been said, but, but it seems to be the way that it is. But really the real reason they're coming here is so I can reach them with the gospel. Amen. And we can have worldwide revival right here at home. Amen. Look forward to 16. It says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. 
And he stood up for to read. There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, verse 18, this is probably the closest thing you're going to find to a personal mission statement from Jesus. If, if he said what his purpose was in the earth, it's wrapped up in verse number 18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Other translations for the word bruised uses words like oppressed or confused or overwhelmed. How many of us here tonight know somebody that's overwhelmed in life? Amen. If we're honest with ourselves, in the last 18 months we've all been overwhelmed with everything that's going on. Verse 19, he said, To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he handed the scroll back to the attendant. He sat down and he said, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of all of that. He said, that is what I came to do. And I pray for God to help me as I go through life to be reminded of this, because if this is what Jesus was all about, this is what I need to be about. Amen. I want to preach for just a little bit tonight on the topic of the hands and the feet of Jesus. The hands and feet of Jesus. Why don't we pray again together? Lord, I thank you tonight for what you've already done in this place. God, thank you for those that have gathered here. Lord, I know that your presence is in this place. We feel you here tonight. Lord, I know that your word is anointed, God. We just ask that you will anoint our hearts to receive your word tonight. And Lord, I ask to hear, God, and help us understand what you would be saying to us individually and collectively as a body of believers. Lord, I give you praise in advance for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. We live in a world today full of questions. More than ever before, our world is in trouble. And there are problems everywhere. There are questions everywhere. And the answers that they need to the questions they're asking are found in the hands and the feet of Jesus. What our world needs more than anything else is Jesus and less specifically, what they need is for us to be more like Jesus. Amen. That scripture we read, uh, he didn't say that uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to go to great conferences. I love going to conferences. I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. He didn't say the Spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, and has caused me to have great service on Sunday. Now, don't get me wrong, I'd much rather have great church than bad church. And I'm certainly not going to go to have no church, right? So I'm not against all of those things. But that's not why he came, and that's not what our purpose is and what he wants us to do. Amen. They need us to be more like Jesus. I wasn't raised in a Pentecostal home or a Pentecostal church. I came to the Lord at 20 years of age and had a pretty severe drug addiction when I came to God. I had already seen uh, many things, uh, negative things out in the world. I had been a pallbearer in seven funerals 
of close personal friends that either died due, due to drug addiction or uh, automobile accidents or things of that nature. I had two other friends that were facing severe penalty and possibly time in the penitentiary, and I didn't like either one of those paths. I didn't like the grave, and I didn't like the penitentiary. And so uh, I, I got introduced to uh, an apostolic church, and I started visiting. And, and when I finally got serious with myself and got serious with God, and one night at a Pentecostal altar, he delivered me from an addiction. I had been over 18 months since I had been sober, and in that one night, he took it all away. Now I thank God for I thank God for programs that are available and twelve step programs and all of those things and if they if they're helping people I'm all for it but God can do it in a moment, Amen. When we make up our mind that I'm not going that way anymore, I'm gonna go the other way. I've been running as hard as I could after the things of the world and I just turned around and kept running as hard as I could after the things of God. So I came into the church, and and I uh, about three weeks after I got in church, we had a missionary that came to our church. And of course, back in the, the late '80s, we didn't have uh, you know video and 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 projectors and all that. We, they had these uh, projectors they would show slides on. And you might remember they had the round cartridge on top, and each photo had its own slot. And every time you push the button, it click real loud and go to the next picture. And Click real hard and go to the next picture, and it seems like it was about an hour and a half or two hours worth of pictures. And if you were in the youth department in those days, you know the youth were all sitting on one side, just kind of falling out of their pew. How long is it going to take? When is he ever going to get done? You know, because I don't really have to understand what was really going on. And at least that's kind of how I remember it. But but I was mesmerized by these pictures and all these stories. How could somebody give up everything and go to another country and learn another language to preach to people about Jesus? And he drew me in with all of his stories. And after church, I went to my pastor and I said, Pastor, I think God called me to be a missionary tonight. Well, I've only been in church about three weeks. And bless his heart, he didn't laugh at me. I don't know how I kept a straight face. Because the reality is, I probably could not even pass a drug test yet. I had no business talking about being a missionary. I didn't know if Noah built the ark or whether it was Moses. I didn't know if Peter or Paul preached on the day of Pentecost. I didn't know any of those things. My pastor said, well, why don't you let me up here Saturday and we'll talk about it. And we met on Saturday and he said, I tell you what, I don't want to just give you some uh, uh pre prepared answer. I want to pray about this and see if we can get an answer from God. What he was really saying was, I need to figure out a way to let you down easy. <laughs> because he was no way going to sign off on me doing anything other than being in that church and trying to ground me in the Word of God. So we met three or four Saturdays in a row and, and finally he said, I think I've got direction for you. I want you to go home and I want you to read the Gospels. And then he didn't even assume that I knew what that meant. He said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read the Gospels. And when you get done, read it again. And when you get done, read it a third time. Because in the Gospels, you will read about the life and the ministry of Jesus and how he interacted with hurting and broken people. He said, you'll read about how to be like Jesus. 
And then he pointed at me and says, and quite honestly, you are nothing like Jesus. You know, like, have a nice day. <laughs> I'm like, I'm the, only, I'm the only young person in this church in this office wanting to do more. And you're going to say, I'm nothing like Jesus. <laughs> we can't do that. we got nice pastors these days. Pastors don't do that kind of thing anymore. Probably not in Wisconsin, but in other places, if you do that, they'll change churches on you. <laughs> that wouldn't happen here, though. So I did what he said. I went home. I started reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read it, and I read it again and again. And in 33 hours, I'm still not done. Now, don't get me wrong. I've read the rest of it, and, and I like to preach out of some of the rest of it from time to time. But I'm still submerged in those stories about how Jesus interacted with, with broken people. Amen. I believe that we have windows in the Gospels that we can look through and see how what Jesus did in certain situations. And from that, we can learn how to be the hands and feet of Jesus. One such window is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. I want to kind of run through this uh, set of scriptures here one verse at a time and, and kind of go slowly through this. Luke seven eleven. <laughs> says that it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. Well, first of all, the day after what? So I went back and looked that up. And I, in chapter 6, he had been, uh, the Sermon on the Mount was taking place. They had spent several days teaching and, and training and, 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 and talking to people. And, and so uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, he had gone to Capernaum. Many times in the scriptures, Jesus went to Capernaum, sometimes to rest after uh, strenuous uh, ministry opportunities. Capernaum is a city we read a lot about in the New Testament. In fact, Nazareth, his hometown, when they rejected him, Jesus kind of adopted Capernaum as his second hometown. And he, he went there all the time. You might remember the story in the scripture where uh, it was noised abroad that Jesus was in the house and, and people came from everywhere and, and so much so that you couldn't even get in the, inside the house. And four men brought a man on a stretcher, could not get to Jesus, went up on top of the roof, tore the roof off, and let him down into the presence of Jesus. That, that story happened in Capernaum. I preached another message on that story, and I titled it, uh, Four of a Kind Beats a Full House. And just so you don't think that's a flashback to before I was in church, let me explain that. Four people with a like mind to do something for God is more impressive than a house full of people that just came to see the show. My personal opinion, and it's probably not worth anything, but my opinion is we have too many spectators in Pentecost. We don't have time for spectators in the church. We have to have everybody participating. Everybody making disciples. Amen. Everybody winning the lost. So Capernaum, he was there, and, and they had already seen a lot of miracles in Capernaum, and one day he gets up and decides to go to a city called Nain. You can't find much about this city. This is the only place it's listed in the Bible. I looked it up and all I can find about it is the name of the city means charming. So it was a charming little city apparently. It was off the beaten path. It was not in their regular rotation of places where they would go. 
Amen. Not only did Jesus go, but it says many of his disciples went with him and much people. So get this, get the picture today. Jesus gets up one morning, decides to go to Nain. Well, what's so important about Nain? I mean, we've already seen him do great miracles in Capernaum. Why do we have to leave our comfort zone and go somewhere else, a no-name place, to see a miracle when we can have miracles here? Kind of like in a modern-day church. We can see miracles at church, Pastor. Why do I need to be out there talking to the drunk man or the homeless man or the, or the little lady? Right? I'll see more miracles inside the four walls of the church than I'll ever see outside. But does that give me an excuse not to do something outside? Secondly, it's 21 miles from Capernaum to Nain. It's a long way. Jesus just gets up and says, we're going to walk 21 miles, right? They didn't have Greyhound bus. They didn't have Uber. If I were one of the disciples, I would have said, go ahead and call that ambulance now because I'm not going to make it. But they're going 21 miles to a no-name city, overlooked place off the beaten path. Verse 12, they came nigh to the gate of the city. Behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. I love the details that Luke gives in his writing. Not only was he her only son, but she was already a widow. In other words, she's not just experienced death one time. She's experienced death twice. It says, and much people of the city was with her. So here's the picture. These two crowds of people meet at the city gate. Coming one direction is Jesus, many of his disciples, and much people. Uh, yes, they've walked a long way, but there's still an excitement. There's still uh, an expectancy. Surely if he made us walk this far, we're going to see a great miracle. Uh, we, as I said, we've seen miracles before in Capernaum. So what's he going to do today? And there was just a buzz in the crowd about what they might see. While all the while coming the opposite way is this mother, her dead son, and much people, all of them mourning the loss with this mother. They feel the pain of her loss. There, there's no life insurance. There's no social security. When it's, this is over, it's just done for her. She, she lost her husband. And she's lost her son, and there's not a lot of hope, and there's not a lot of future for this lady. Amen. These two groups meet and at the town gate, and I love verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He just looked at her, and his heart went out to her. Have you ever wondered what happens to God when he looks at your life? When he looks at my life, when he looks at my past and my failure and my pain, when he looks at my struggle, the Bible says when Jesus saw her, he knew exactly what her struggle was. And his heart went out to her. And he told her something very unusual. He said, quit your crying. I know it says weep not, but that's just King James for quit your crying. What an interesting thing to say at a funeral. I have a very vivid imagination. The way I learn is visual. And if you tell me a story, I put it into a, in my brain like a cartoon. That's how I see it. That's the way I've always learned. And so when I read this, I can see a church, and I'm not trying to be derogatory or, uh, you know, out of bounds 
with this thought, but this is how I see it. I see a church full of people. I see a casket in front of the pulpit, and this is how we do it in our culture. At the end of the service, the family will stand off to one side. We'll all form a line, and we'll come by one last viewing of the body, and we'll give our condolences to the family. If you're a distant relative, you might say something like, we really don't need to wait uh, for these negative times to get together. We ought to get together more often on happier times. And if you're part of the church, you might say, now don't go cooking any meals this week, because the ladies of the church have that all scheduled for you, and we're going to take care of it. And all the things that you say at a funeral. Can you imagine being two-thirds of the way back in that line, and when it's your time to come by, you get up to the family and you say, hey, quit your crying. Even with my vivid imagination, I can't see doing that. But you see, the difference is when you come in contact with Jesus, things are about to change. Amen. He tells her to weep not. Verse 14, he came and touched the beer, which is like the stretcher they were carrying the boy on. And those that bear him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. He that was dead sat up and began to speak. One scholar, I looked this up in many uh, different commentaries. And one scholar said, Jesus reached through the veil of limitation, grabbed that son and snatched him back to life. I love that word picture. He reached through the veil of limitations. Notice it doesn't say the veil of impossibility. Because with God, there's no impossibility. And quite honestly, the only limitations are our faith. Snatched him back to life. The dead man sits up and begins to talk. He delivered him to his mother. Verse 16, fear came on all the glorified God, saying, A great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. Another translation says, God has come to help his people. Church, tonight I just believe that God has come to help people. And we get the privilege and the honor of being in the hands and the feet of Jesus. Jesus just breaks up a funeral, sends everybody back home. This mother, she left a, a home that was empty. She left a home of pain and insecurity. She's returning home with hope and the promise of a future. Why? Because Jesus changes things. Amen. And for us, that's what we are to be doing for people. As the hands and feet of Jesus, we are to be changing things for other people. Amen. When we went to pastor in northern Arizona in Flagstaff, uh, again, I had already worked with multicultural ministries for quite a while and, and, and was a, culturally aware. Uh, and so I began looking for cultural opportunities in my city on, on who I can minister to. And we, we realized right away that the Native American was the, was the cultural opportunity. So I began praying every day, God, teach me to reach Native people in my community. Give me favor. Give me trust with the people. Uh, I like to say it like this. Native American people have earned the right not to trust through 500 years of broken promises. And so I was praying for trust, praying for favor. Every day I prayed the same prayer. And, and, and uh, I, I kind of like to plan things out. I'm analytical. And so I had all these plans of how it was going to work. And none of it was working that way. Sometimes I think when we're planning to do stuff for God, God's just up in heaven going, are you done yet? Because when we get done planning, then he'll tell us what he's going to do. Sometimes he's merciful and he'll bless our plans. 
But it's so much better to find out where he's already blessing and join him over here. Amen. I didn't know that yet. So I was, everything I tried, I was frustrated. I drove out on the reservation. I went to a town of 11,000 people, uh, on the Navajo reservation and I, I got out and went into a couple of businesses and I don't know what I thought was going to happen. You know, oh, thank God you're here. We've been waiting on you for all this time, you know. And that could happen, but it didn't. <laughs> Not that day. They just looked at me like another tourist is here, you know. So I, I was frustrated after a few months, and I didn't know what to do. And, and one night, a man from our church, we had about ten Native Americans in our church, and a man came to me and said, Pastor, will you go pray for my grandmother? I said, yes. Is she in the hospital? He said, no, she's two and a half hours out on the Navajo reservation. Well, I already said yes. And I'm not going to break their trust. So I was working a second job. I took Thursday off. I said, I'll call you and we'll go and, and pray. And I called him Thursday morning, said, I'm going to pick you up. He says, well, I'm not going. I have to work. And I was like, I had to work. <laughs> I took the day off. And if I get a day off, I, I don't want to be going two and a half hours out to pray for someone who's probably never coming to my church. I want to do outreach in my city. But I already promised him, so I, I, I got directions. He wrote it all down. And, and not to be derogatory, but my directions were kind of like turned by the big rock. <laughs> There's no street signs. There's no GPS because you don't have cell service out there. When I get there, there's no running water, no electricity. This is in America. In fact, I've preached in a bunch of places with no running water, no electricity. Well, they had one light bulb over the pulpit run by a generator, and they had a little 80-year-old lady throwing wood on a wood-burning stove so we didn't freeze to death, and the outhouse was so far out that everybody just waited. Because <laughs> you've never experienced darkness like darkness on the Navajo Reservation when, when it's nighttime. Because there's no street lights either. <laughs> But anyway, so I gave my directions. He gave pretty good directions. I drove an hour on a paved road, another hour on an unpaved road, and a half hour on a really unpaved road. That's the best way I can explain it. Literally that week in 2016, I bought the red Jeep that's parked right out here because I thought, I'm going to need this. And I got there, and a young man came out and said, come in. I got inside. There were 24 people in this house wanting a Bible study. And I said, that's awesome. Can you tell me how that happened? And his words were, he said, we decided that if, if a Billigana was going to come pray for our grandmother, someone you never even met, we ought to hear what you have to say. Amen. I found out later, Billigana means it's a derogatory term for white boy. <laughs> I didn't get mad about that. That's another thing. we got to get over all this offense. I see, I, I almost have to get off of social media because I see so many Christians getting offended at everything. Christians don't have time to be offended. we got a world to reach. In fact, there's even a scripture about it. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. So not only do I have a personal issue with it, but i got scripture to back it up. That's always nice. <laughs> So anyway, he says, there's 24 people wanting a Bible study. You came this far. We want to hear what you have to say. So we did that. I didn't know that later it was going to become a preaching point. We start going back every month. We baptize seven or eight people in that house from that community and that family. 
But I'm not the end of the story. I just knew what happened that day. And I'm driving home and I'm praying, God, thank you for that. Help me focus, though. You sent me to Flagstaff. Teach me to reach the native people in my community. Well, about three weeks later, a young man said, Pastor, my brother's in trouble. He's going to prison for a year due to domestic violence. And my mom wants to know, will you come pray for him? I said, yes. Is it your brother here at the university? It was his other brother. Two and a half hours the other way on the Apache reservation. Literally, my first thought was, all the roads are going to be paved. <laughs> and I said, when does she want to do it? He said, Wednesday night. We have church on Wednesday night. But I already agreed to it. And that's the only time they can do it. So I got my son-in-law to preach. And and and, and I took off. And I'm, I'm leaving the church God sent me to pastor to go pray for a guy that when I get done praying is still going to prison. Right? He's already been sentenced. You you pray for those people before they see the judge. Right? To get a second chance and all that stuff. I'm like, what am I even going out here for? Nothing's going to change. And I'm leaving this church that God sent me to pastor. But I just had that nudge in my spirit that says, you know what? If you don't say yes, you're never going to know what could have happened. You know, I'm the curiosity killed the cat guy. I just can't say no to people because you never know what might happen. Now, be careful if you do that because I ended up adopting two children that I'll be in my mid-60s when they graduate from high school because I couldn't say no. And if my wife had it her way, I'd buy an abandoned hospital and we'd get about a 100 more of them. Start our own orphanage or something. So I'm driving out to the Apache Reservation. I get about an hour into my drive, and he called and said, My mom said, since you're coming all this way, we want to have a church service. I said, That sounds a little better. How are we going to do that? And he said, I don't know. I'll call you back. I just keep driving. And about 30 minutes, he called and said, My mom found a church that doesn't have Wednesday night service. She borrowed their building. I'd never even heard of that. I thought if I knew I could borrow buildings, I could have saved thousands of dollars on the little churches we put in Missouri. So I get there, and I get to the borrowed building. I go inside. There's 42 people in this building wanting a church service. Only three of us have ever heard of baptism in Jesus' name. And then the infill of the Holy Ghost. So I get up. Uh, the guy from my church played his guitar, sang a couple songs. I preached. Gavin altar called. The altar filled up with people crying out to God. I prayed briefly for his brother, and, and I think I was hard on his brother. I said something like, God, he's going to prison. He's got nothing else to do. You have his undivided attention for a year. Get out of his life so he doesn't get out, make the same dumb mistake, and go back in there. And then I think I said in Jesus' name, amen, you know. He's looking at me like, well, nobody ever prayed like that. But then I prayed for all these other needs in the church and in, in the in the building. And and uh, and when I left, I didn't know later that would become a preaching point. And that our missionary at that time who was doing the job that, that, that I'm doing now came and worked with us in that community for about six months. And now there's a church plant there. I didn't know all that was going to happen later. I just knew what happened that night. And I'm driving home. After midnight, I'm tired. I've got to get up and go to work the next day. God, help me focus. You sent me to Flagstaff, God. Teach me to reach the native people in my city. Well, eventually God was like, hello. You know, what do you think we've been doing? But you see, it didn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. They weren't coming to my church. 
They weren't sitting on my pew. They, can I be honest? Can the preacher be honest tonight? They weren't putting money in my offering plate. See, those are the things that, that I thought mattered because that's what we were always taught that mattered. One, one, uh, I'm going to meddle for a minute, but I'll try to be nice. One church growth guru says what gets measured is what gets done. Right? And so we've always measured things like how many people were there Sunday? You know, how much money was in the offering? But what about how many marriages are better since the last series the pastor taught? Just in case anybody's concerned about that. Or how many children in my community went to bed hungry? You know, and, and I, it always gets quiet if I ever say something like that. Because that's an uncomfortable thing. And, and, and I understand the logistics of it. It doesn't just happen overnight. And we can't do everything. And our primary focus is salvation. We're not all about social justice. Amen. But at some point, if the children in my Sunday school class, if their stomach's growling louder than their teacher's talking, then there's a problem in them learning about Jesus. Amen. Anyway, that, that's not part of the message. but So the reason I tell these stories is I didn't do anything special. I, I wasn't even sure what I was doing part of the time. Just trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus. On nine different occasions, people would ask us to go pray for somebody. If it was at least an hour away, we knew that something completely different was going to happen by the time we got there. The smallest group out of nine was 15. The largest was 80. Drove three hours to help one man taught 80 people about baptism in Jesus' name. That happened everywhere we went. And so there's hungry people out there. But the point is, everybody here tonight can do what I did. Somebody asked me to pray, and I said yes. Amen. That's all we have to do to be the hands and feet. Just trying to be in a moment with a family that needed what the woman at Nain needed. I love this quote. It says, God uses unlikely people in overlooked places to do extraordinary things. Amen. God uses unlikely people. That's me. Overlooked places. That's the reservation. Or that's the city of Nain in this story to do extraordinary things. You see, it amazes me that Jesus walked 21 miles to a no-name city to tell a woman in a low-line situation that she mattered to God. And I say, Lord, help me to be like that. Because I see so many people and they're carrying around their hurt and their pain and they feel like they've been buried and that the best days are behind them. And they're broken and in misery. And I say, God, help me to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So in closing, I'm going to give three, uh, three ways, I guess, that we can do this and be the hands and feet of Jesus. I used to get so frustrated. Preacher would tell me what to do and it never would tell me how to do it. Amen. Number one, we are to go to the pain and look for the lost. Go to the pain. I, I don't want to run away from pain. I don't want to uh, act like I didn't notice other people's pain. I want to run to the pain and look for the lost. I don't want to just wait for people to come to us, but I want to go to where they are. During the time we were in Arizona, we had many heartaches that came along with all that. Our church never got to be more than 65 or 70 people, and, and uh, 
close relatives of our members, none of our membership, thankfully, but like their aunts, uncles, or cousins, or nephews, close relatives. We had eight alcohol-related deaths, eight drug-related deaths, and nine suicides in five years. And, of course, I don't know what everyone else's experience is, but that just seems like a lot. Every time we turn around, we get a little momentum, some positive things, revival start to happen, and something like this would happen. It would be like a blanket that would come. And then we had medicine men come from the reservation and put spells on our people. Now, I don't believe in any of that, but guess what? They do. And that affects the attitude of our whole church. 65% of our people were Native American. All these things and just fighting the devil on every turn, it seems like. Just like every other church. I read the other day something that says, if you don't like mud, don't pray for rain. In church work, that is such a great quote. That's my motto. If you don't like mud, don't pray for rain. I think there's a scripture about that too. So where there's no ox, the, the stalls are clean or something like that. Yeah. What strength was gained? So go to the pain. And look for the lost. Number two, love the unlovable and give hope to the hurting. I don't want to just love people that have it all together. I want to love the unlovable. I I want to love people that are hurting and are broken. I just want to be a, a word of hope or a word of encouragement for somebody. It's not always about um, getting them in church, getting them baptized, although that's the goal. But we have to start where they are. And sometimes we have to give a word of hope before we can give any other kind of word. Real quickly, one more personal story. I was in Texas about four months ago uh, preaching, and I had a service in the morning, and I drove four hours that afternoon to my next service because everything in West Texas is a long way apart. And I went four hours, and I had another service. Got there right when it started. After church, I got to my hotel. It was late. I was tired. I didn't want to wait for the elevator to go all the way up and come all the way back down. The doors were, were open, and I saw my chance to catch a ride on the elevator. But I didn't want to just barge in on a family with COVID protocols. And so I said, ma'am, can I share your elevator? She said, sure, come on. So I got on this elevator, and it was this mom and two daughters. Well, her youngest was about four years old. And her older daughter was eight or nine, and she had a pretty severe case of Down syndrome. And all three of them have towels wrapped around them, and their hair's just dripping wet. And I said, the dumbest thing I could think of. I said, you guys just go swimming? <laughs> Obviously, that's what happened. <laughs> and when I did that little four-year-old girl, she lit up, her eyes got big. She kind of leaned in like this. She said, Mr., I got the best mom in the world. Now, that's not the response I was expecting. <clears throat> she said, I got the best mom in the world. I've been begging for six months to go swimming, and, and she brought me swimming. Mr. D.L.O., one of my location, one of my city. And my mom got a hotel just so I could go swimming. And I jumped in the deep end, and, then, and all this stuff, and just on and on and on. And all the while, her older sister, who had a little more trouble communicating, but did not want to be left out, and was not going to be left out. All she could really think to say was, swimming pool, swimming pool, swimming pool. And over here you got, best mom in the world. I jumped in the deep end. And over here you got swimming pool. And, and I got my hands on both knees. And I'm just looking at them eye level. And I'm thinking, man, you guys had a great time. And my room was on the fourth floor. And they got off on the third floor. 
And when they did, I happened to look up finally. And that they were walking off the elevator, both of them just jabbering, swimming pool. And uh, I saw their mom. She had a big old grin. And it wasn't just a tear. It was like a river. And she's wiping it with the whole palm of her hand. And then that door closed. Now, I would love to tell you that I took them right back down and baptized her in the swimming pool. That that could happen. That's not how that happened that night. And I don't really want to misrepresent and tell you that I know her situation. I'm not saying it's a bad home. They may have a great home life. They may have a two-parent home. In fact, Dad might have been waiting in the hotel room. I don't know any of that. But what I do know, it's not easy raising children with special needs. And so for that mom to hear her own child say, I've got the best mom in the world. See, to just be in a moment like that, to bring a smile and hope to someone who might be struggling. I wanted to share that because it's not all about, well, I taught 12 Bible studies this week, you know, and I can teach it in Greek and Hebrew and I can't. <laughs> I'm just saying for the for those guys like my brother-in-law who can. <laughs> and I don't take away from all that. But you know what? The world doesn't care about all that. You know, literally, it's all Greek to them. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. But just being with people in the situation giving hope to the hurting. And lastly, why don't we stand together? Offer the grace of God to people and invite them to life. You see, we offer what we have, and it's life-giving. To to, to just be a blessing to somebody. I get asked all the time, how how were we successful in reaching Native people? And, And the first thing I say was, I don't know who determines its success. So, first of all, let's take that out of the equation. Because Jesus never said, well done, thou good and successful servant. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you're faithful, you are successful. Period. And and, and you can't compare somebody else's results. I used to go to church growth conferences, and I came home and I had to go get treated for depression. Because all these guys were doing all this stuff and it was working and I, nothing was working for me. And I was like, God, what's wrong with me? Why isn't it working here? And Morrell Cornwell down in Wichita, Kansas, you know, is like, could baptize mannequins and they're talking in tongues, it seems like. <laughs> I taught a Bible study to a family and they joined the Methodist church. Literally. On lesson three, usually when, when exploring God's Word, when people usually see their need for baptism, after that I didn't hear from them for three weeks. I contacted them. They said, yeah, we've been meaning to call you. we got some great news. You taught us about baptism. And we uh, decided that uh, my husband and I needed to get back to church and get our two children in church. And all four of us were baptized at the Methodist church on Sunday. And you can't rejoice, but... But you can't really, what do you do, you know? Like, I think we got a bad connection. I missed that last part. And I was wondering, God, what's happening? What's wrong with me? So it's not about success. It's about loving people, winning people to you before you try to introduce them to Jesus. My pastor in Kansas City, he's got a phrase. He's been saying this for 10 years plus. Make a friend, 
make a disciple. He wrote a book on, on disciple making. And somebody asked me recently, said, have you read Brother Gleason's book? I said, why would I want to read it? He's been preaching that for 15 years. I've heard that so many times. Now I have his book and I've read it. I'm not trying to be crude toward my pastor. But you see what I'm saying? we got to get to where the people are. And it's going to take a little bit of an effort. It's going to take uh, some inconvenience. And it's going to take some of my time. But for, for me to, to minister among native people, because that's where God is sending me. For you, it's the people right here in La Crosse on Alaska, the whole surrounding area. There's broken, hurting people probably within a stone's throw of the front door of this church. I don't have to spend any time here to know that because that's the same way everywhere I go. Amen. And they need us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So in closing, why don't we just pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Maybe while I was uh, preaching or teaching here tonight, maybe God put someone on your heart that maybe that he wants to send you to even this week to try to reach out to them and do something for them so that you can earn the respect to, to speak into their lives. Lord Jesus, I thank you tonight. For I thank you, Lord, for the, the one of name, God. I know she had trouble. I know she had heartache and pain. But, Lord, you allowed that to happen so that you can walk into her life, God, and raise her son from the dead, not just for her benefit, God, but as a lesson to your disciples and to us here tonight, God, that you've got something for each one of us to do. Lord, that this, we're never too far gone, Lord, to hear this sight, to arise and walk, God. Lord, when you reach through that veil of, of limitations, God, you can help us, Lord, to do what you've called us to do. Lord, send us to the broken. Send us to the brown. Send us to those who are overwhelmed, God. Help us to go to the last, God. Help us to look for the lost, Lord, and go to the pain. Help us to offer the grace of God to those we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, I thank you for it, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. I give you praise tonight, God. Praise God. Let's reach out to him one more time, church. This speaks to exactly what the Lord has been giving us. This speaks exactly to what it is that we need to focus on. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are such an awesome God. Thank you, Jesus, for the ministration of your spirit in this house today. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for sending your servant to us for such a time as this. That you would speak to us in such a way to confirm your word to us. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us to give ourselves wholly and completely into your service. Help us, Lord Jesus, in these end times to give ourselves, to dedicate ourselves, to commit ourselves to serving you, to work for you, to build your kingdom. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. That you would use someone such as me, someone such as us, to do the work of God. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus for what you're about to do in this city. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God.
Thank you, Brother Reddy. That was, that was an amazing message. Thank you.